trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, very happy to welcome Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos back to the program. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good. I'm just contemplating the prospect of German tanks being sent to attack the Russians. Mm. What could go wrong? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that didn't work out so great last time. Yeah, I, the, the whole Ukraine thing and, and the disinformation. I Look, I really, I don't have a dog in that fight. I don't see a lot of good guys on either side, but... I do see some very clear propagandizing on the part of uh, senior yet always unnamed U.S. officials. What's up with that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I guess they don't want to be held accountable. But isn't it interesting that it's always this this black and white, never nuanced thing? And, you know, you're either with us or against us. It's been going on for a long time. So like you, I am certainly sympathetic uh, on a human level to the plight of people who are caught up in this maelstrom over there. Uh, but this this sort of treacly and supercilious business of saying that you stand with Kiev, what does that mean? You stand with Ukraine, you know? It's it's just it's fatuous. You know, nobody's saying that they stand with Somalia, by the way. Uh, you know, so everybody's focused on this this Eastern European country as if it's the hinge point uh, of world order, as uh, our friendly neocon Republican, air fingers quotes, Lindsey Graham likes to style it, as he advocates for sending more munitions over there to poke the Russian bear. Yeah, you know, at some point, and I know there are some saying this, but at some point you would think that more people would finally catch on to it. Well, this is just a proxy war between the U.S. government and Russia. Sure. And it, and by dint of that, it's a war on us in the sense that potentially this thing could go, you know, as they say, kinetic and, and get bigger. And what benefit is that to not only Americans, but to the Ukrainians themselves, uh, if it precipitates a wider or potentially uh, even global nuclear kind of war, who's in, who's who's whose interest is that in? Exactly. Well, nothing like playing a game of nuclear chicken, and you know that's not. <laughs> I know by chicken hawks, right? Well, it's, and that's not to say that Russia is right. It's just you know. There's there's so much more nuance to this than people want to believe, but yep. our, this is just to me another example of where not only our press but our political class is so wrapped up in the propaganda. They they will tell us the sun is not shining at high noon and and expect us to believe it. Yeah, you know uh, something occurs to me. There there are better alternatives, aren't there? Why not push for some sort of negotiated settlement that gives each side some of what they need and just diffuses this whole situation. Uh, instead of that, it's this all-or-nothing thing. It's kind of like at the height of the Ronomania. Uh, you couldn't go out and get yourself ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or however you pronounce that. Right. It had to be the vaccine, and only the vaccine, right? Yes. In fact, uh, I, I, I'll tell you this. There's a doctor uh, from my state of Idaho who has been uh, targeted by the medical uh, establishment. And I'm talking like the uh, different review boards. Now, actually, the Idaho, uh, whatever board it is that oversees medicine and doctors in Idaho, they've looked into allegations of misdoing, uh, but uh, they haven't gone after him. But he also has a license to practice in Washington state. They are going after him full bore because they're saying he made statements that cast doubt on the medical establishment. Statements about vaccines, about masks, yeah. about uh, hydroxychloroquine and and uh, and ivermectin, and and none of them can find the courage to say. But he was right. <laughs> he wasn't yeah, I was wrong. Say, 
you remember when the truth used to be a defense? Right. You know, I mean, it's like it's irrelevant now that a person was correct on the fact. What matters is that they question the lies. I mean, it's it's hallucinatory. Yeah, well, this this is why individuals such as you and I do what we do. In part, not that we have all the answers, but we're at least trying to give people a fighting chance to to see things as they really are. Well, just to think and use the brain that God gave you to evaluate the facts and come to a reasonable conclusion instead of you know going off half cocked on some sort of unhinged, hysterical, uh, deranged, hysteric, emotional tangent. Right. Well, and this, this is why I work very hard, and I know you do as well, to cultivate resources and, and sources of information that may not be perfect, but at least are, are reliable. And if, if they have a particular bias or a particular slant, they're upfront about it. So you can at least manage, you know, whatever bias there is. If they, ha- if they have transparency about that, I'm actually okay with it because I know going in. It's, it's the, the sure. main, mainstream press that pretends like, oh, no, we're above that. Why, everything we report is as objective and factual as possible. <laughs> right. Well, now you're getting into hate speech. You know, they're oh, talking yes. about in Europe uh, characterizing any disagreement with anything that the authoritative sources say as, quote, unquote, hate speech. You know, of course, they're framing it. Uh, in the usual manner that uh, we're only talking about people who uh, make anti-Semitic or uh, or other kinds of comments of that nature. But ultimately what they're talking about is making it a criminal offense uh, to uh, to say something that they don't like. That's the bottom line. There was a, an appalling incident that occurred in the U.K. recently. You're probably well aware of this one. There was a woman who stood across the street from an abortion clinic, and all she did was stand there. She didn't say anything. She didn't even have a sign. She just stood there. And she was approached by cops who asked her what she was doing and continued to question her and asked her if she might be praying. Right, right. And her offense, her crime, they arrested her and took her uh, downtown because it, she admitted that she might have been praying. I saw that video. And, and you know, sometimes I watch these videos coming out of the U.K. just out of a sense of, of uh, horror and fascination. The same way I kind of have to look at an accident as I'm driving by and, you know, see sure. just how awful it is. And it's, it's really that awful. They, they have become so dystopian and so uh, just Orwellian in, in how they treat free speech. You know, you made a social media post. We may have to arrest you for that because someone was offended. Yeah, and we have to push back against that very hard uh, and not permit them, uh, not give them an inch of ground on that. Um, that. That speech simply is inviolable, bottom line. You know, it's not the same. It, it's not. Uh, saying something that somebody doesn't like or that hurts their feelings is not a physical attack on them. It is not a threat, and if their feelings are hurt, well, they're going to have to need to learn to deal with their feelings. And we have to be stalwart about that and stop, frankly, caring about the feelings of these people who feign that they are affronted by what we've said. Yeah, well, and with people who are looking for offense, you know, you will never be able to say anything, no matter how tame. I think kittens are cute. Someone will find offense with that. Yeah, in fact, I saw something else that came out of the UK where they are, they, I guess the language police, are claiming that the word, word fields, I'm not making this up, fields are somehow racist because of the imputation that people worked in the fields. Oh, my word. Yeah, it, it really does. It, 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 Orwellian doesn't even begin to cover it. And, and Orwell, I thought, set the bar pretty high for, look, this is how bad it can get. And it seems like they're exceeding mm-hmm. even what he described in 1984. 
Yeah, well, once these sorts of things get rolling, it's very hard to get them to stop. You know, inevitably, they seem to just pick up speed and hit something. And hopefully, they're going to hit the wall pretty soon. Let's hope so. In the meantime, I know I can count on you to, to be a voice of reason and, and a voice of uh, considered judgment. And, and again, Eric, one of the things, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your skirt here, but I appreciate the fact that you do not act as if, look, I have all the answers, folks, and you should trust implicitly what I'm saying. Uh, you give people good information, but you also uh, give them responsibility for, you know, make sure you're, you're doing your part to, to check this out, to verify it, and not just running on somebody else's light. Yeah, well, I'm weird, but I'm not deranged. I don't think I'm the Wizard of Oz. I don't think I have all the answers. I just offer up uh, my evaluation of the facts that I'm aware of, and I like to think I'm a reasonable person. And if the facts uh, are contrary or if somebody presents me with different facts, I'll evaluate those and alter my, uh, you know, my view or opinion on that accordingly. So I have to ask you, we've got about a minute before we have to go to break here, but it appears, at least from some angles, that the COVID narrative is really starting to fly apart. Are you, are you seeing this as well? Well, I'm hearing of it. You know, I still see people wearing the masks, unfortunately, when I go to the supermarket. Uh, you know, most of them, however, seem to be elderly people who probably are still watching CNN. Uh, but by and large, that's dissipating. On the other hand, what I think is interesting is that even the so-called mainstream sources now um, are beginning to wheel around on some of this and acknowledging, for example, uh, the problems with heart inflammation um, that these vaccines have uh, and are conceding that things went too far. Um, and, of course, I think they're being pushed to do that because people have wised up to it. And that's great. You know, I think it's taken us a couple of years, but I think finally the Titanic is beginning to turn a little bit. I hope so. I do. And, and yet, as, as you had mentioned, though, as, as we see more people starting to wake up to the facts, we actually start to hear more open talk of, well, you know, this hate speech, this doubting of uh, all that is official, we, we can't have that. That's dangerous to our democracy, I think is, is the catchphrase of the hour. Well, they'll keep saying that. But on the other hand, we've got people like, are you familiar with the guy who's the cartoonist for Dilbert? Oh, yeah, Scott Adams. Yeah, did you watch his, his sort of mea culpa? The other I did. Day he, he put, uh, yeah, he put out this video in which he acknowledged that the people who didn't take the vaccines were right. You know, and he didn't do it. He did it in a really, I thought, humble manner. You know, he acknowledged, you know, hey, you guys who uh, practiced due diligence and wanted some answers before you were uh, going to permit something to be put into your body, you guys were right. You had the better outcome. And, and there's a lot of that going on. Bill Maher, who's on the left, you know, he is somebody else who has asked a, a lot of really pertinent questions of people like, for example, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Hold that if you, thought. If you saw that. Hold that thought. We're up against the break. Mm -hmm. Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is my guest. We'll be back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. We are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, you had a recent article about the shirts on our backs. And I, this was hard. This was a tough one to read. Not because uh, I thought your thinking was convoluted. Your thinking was right on. But the truths that you were speaking to, they were kind of painful. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I got to thinking about the WEF. You know, we've all heard about the WEF and our good friend Klaus Schwab and their slogan about how we'll own nothing in the future and we'll be happy. And I rattled that around in my head a little bit, and I thought, you know, we're kind of already there. You know, this is just sort of a mopping up operation. And what I mean by that, uh, and the title of the article, we, uh, we only own the shirts that are on our back, it's true. 
you know, I paid for my house. I paid it off a long time ago. I paid the bank off uh, back in, what, 2003. So it's 20 years I've paid for my house, and yet I still get a bill every year from the government, <laughs> uh, you know, and I still have to pay this bill, this property tax. And if I don't pay it, they're going to take my house. Right. So in effect, I'm a renter. I am a renter, and so is everybody else who thinks they own a house. We're in the same position fundamentally as anybody who lives in an apartment or rents a house or whatever. And in many states, the same is true with regard to what they call personal property, your vehicles, your equipment, whatever it might be. They send you a bill for it all the time. So, you know, not only are we taxed on the income that we earn, but we're constantly required to pay money to these people in order to retain conditional use of whatever the item is. You know, I can I can live in my house and I can, uh, you know, I can be on my land. I can use it up to a point, provided I continue to pay the government. So what is that if not the definition of not owning something? I like that you also in that article referenced a lodial freehold, Yeah, which that's a term yep. very few people have ever heard in their lifetimes. But there was a time when it was understood if you own that property, you really own that property. And you're not just paying rent to whatever government, uh, you know, agency happens to call it its jurisdiction. Yeah, that was the thing uh, that in former times, in medieval times, in feudal times, distinguished the uh, the nobility, the lords, from the serfs. The, the lords owned their land, absolutely. It was theirs. Uh, it was not encumbered by uh, anything else, uh, whereas the serf, of course, owned nothing <laughs> per the WEF and was permitted upon sufferance to continue to occupy the land so long as the lord wished. There's a, there's an interesting uh, uh, modern um, that, that from that era that, that lives with us today in Germany, uh, a baron is a Freiherr, which means a free lord, and it was you were defined as one of those if you owned land. Well, we don't own land, and it's not coincidental. And the reason for that is they don't want us to be lords in our own right. Wow. Well, and and the older I get, and the more I catch on to those who want me to eat bugs and own nothing and mm-hmm. be happy. The more determined I want to be, you know, to be self-reliant. I mean, we just had a power outage this morning. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and realized, okay, the power's out. It's 10 degrees outside. You know, what what am I able to do? But I take seriously the idea of self-reliance. I have a way for light. I have something to do for heat. And, you know, I've... I take great pride in that. I want my own land. I want to be able to grow my Mm -hmm. own food. And and I don't want to have to, you know, have... uh, big uncle looking down, you know, over my shoulder, just, you know, rubbing his hands together thinking someday this will all be mine. Yeah. I mean, two thoughts to that. First, I'm right now, as we're talking, standing in front of my wood burning fireplace, uh, my, my wood stove, uh, uh, which is burning wood that I chopped and split uh, and that I cut down on my own land. So I don't have to worry about uh, the centralized, centralized control apparatus deciding to turn off the, uh, the electricity uh, and I'll freeze. Um, the second thing, to get back to this business of uh, lords and serfs, I wish people would begin to ask the question whenever they hear that term about how we'll own nothing and be happy in the future. Implicit in that is that somebody else is going to own everything, and who might that be? Uh, good question. Well, look at look at the incredible wealth transfer that took place over the last three years. The way that, mm-hmm. uh, that things just happened to work out that, you know, the very well-connected um, – Really, they did quite well, even as mom and pop businesses withered and died on the line, mostly, you know, through no fault of their own. It was, you know, sorry, you're non-essential. You have to shut down. Yeah, one of the many, many ironies of our times is the the political ideological left, which at one time feigned to be 
the uh, the champion of the working man, of the average person, has become precisely the opposite of that, uh, and is now the enslaver of uh, the average man, the working man, the middle class person. They are uh, everything that they once uh, criticized, and yet because of their cognitive dissonance, they don't even see it or appreciate it. Wow. Well, for those of us who do, you know, we have our work cut out for us, but um, I'm determined, and I know you are as well. I will live as freely as possible, even if it isn't perfect. I will be as free as I possibly can and encourage anyone else who is trying to achieve that themselves. Right. Absolutely. Uh, You know, the the saying comes to mind about manning up and manning up means handling things yourself. It means not expecting that somebody else is going to come in and do something for you. We've lost that attitude. And it's not just an attitude for men. It's for women. It's for all adult people that we must act as adults and be responsible for ourselves and then secondarily for the people that uh, we are responsible for, meaning our families, our kids, and so on. Here, here. Well, anything you can do to reduce your governmental footprint, it's seen as a revolutionary thing. It, I mean, some people see it as very dangerous. Oh, why would you want to do that? But that's the, that's the heart and soul of, of something called agorism. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, government it brings up another thing. Uh, I can't remember who, who wrote this, and it was a few years ago, but it was a defense of anarchism, you know, against the usual mantra that, oh, my God, there would be chaos and everybody would be looting and pillaging and raping and all of these other things. The, the, the idea that somehow, that in any way, that could be worse than the, the established factual historical track record of what government has done, how many hundreds of millions of people have been slaughtered by the government? Has there ever been any mass genocides committed by individual so-called anarchists who just want to be left the heck alone? No. But, uh, boy, anybody steps out of line, we're told that, uh, you know, that's the greatest threat to, again, our democracy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, so a good way to cut through this is just to examine their verbiage and, and define it. Because once you define it, you realize what they're really up to. You know, the whole thing with democracy, which I've written about many times and a lot of these other code words that they like to use. Uh, you know, don't let them uh, uh, wheedle you into using them in the way they want you to use them. Force them to come out and be explicit about what they're talking about, and then challenge them on that. I like to ask the question sometimes, this is a courtesy of Aberon Herbert, um, by what right do men exercise power over each other in the first place? And some people will just sit there and do an impression of a brook trout. They don't know how to answer that question. Some will give it a stab, but at some level, they have to acknowledge any act that a person has to do under compulsion. How could it have a moral element, seeing that what's moral has to be freely chosen? It can't be forced. Sure. And a related question is, how can it be that uh, an action, if it is immoral for you or I as individuals to commit that act, how is it that the same act can somehow become moral when it's committed by this entity called the government? Right, right, unless people believe in magic. Well, if, we, if the person doing mm-hmm. it is wearing this magical costume, well, then, you know, it's, yeah. it's okay. Yeah, you know, it's childish thinking, and that gets us back to this whole business of being an adult and manning up and facing reality and thinking, you know, getting back to that thinking. This is, I think, Ultimately, the core problem is that as a people, as a culture, as a society, the capacity to critically think, uh, not just to regurgitate rote memorizations and and bromides, but to actually pause. And, okay, you told me this. I'm going to think about it a moment. I'm going to evaluate that in my mind based on the facts that I know and then come up with my response. 
That's what we need more of. Here, here. And and by the way, a good rule of thumb, when someone is pressuring you to agree with them, don't you agree? Don't you agree? That is the perfect yeah. time to step back and say, I'm not sure about that. Or I'm going to need to yep. think about that because, you know, high pressure car salesman. Yeah. Don't you agree? Wouldn't you like to sign on the line? You know, that's that's what people do rhetorically to try to get you to agree to immoral policies. Yes. You know, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. I'm sure you're familiar with him and you oh, may yeah. even know the guy. I wish I did. Um, but one of the things that I respect and admire about that man is the way he handles discussion. If you if you listen to him talk, he'll reflect before he answers. The question is yep. posed, and he'll think about it a moment, and then he'll respond. And it's, it's just a wonderfully civilized way to engage in discussion. Eric, great to talk with you as always. We'll catch up again mm-hmm. next week. Count on it. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I know sometimes I feel like I'm just, you know, getting it off my chest. I'm just venting my spleen, but I really do uh, appreciate uh, that there are people out there still looking for truth or at least looking for, you know, something different than the pre-digested, spoon-fed pablum that uh, so much of, of our legacy media is willing to serve us, you know, and all you have to do in, in return is just open your mouth like a baby bird uh, and let them just shovel it in. Hopefully this is something that's a little more mentally nutritious, something a little meatier that, uh, you know, requires some work to to get, to, to digest, to think over, and... Okay, I'll stop with all the food comparisons because I'm now making myself hungry. Wanted to bring you a quick update uh, on Ammon Bundy. Now, yesterday he was supposed to begin trial. He reached some kind of an agreement. And I want to tip my hat to Bill, who uh, actually showed up and uh, was was there at the courtroom. Contrary to Ammon's message, which had said, okay, look, we don't need people to show up. The state of Idaho and St. Luke's did proceed with the trespassing trial yesterday morning. And so there were about 40 or 50 supporters of Ammon who showed up. Now, this was the criminal side of the ongoing prosecution of Ammon. St. Luke's alleged that Ammon and others in their protest of St. Luke's kidnapping baby Cyrus blocked the ambulance bay, keeping incoming emergency vehicles from arriving and bringing patients into the hospital. Now, that didn't occur, but that's what St. Luke's alleges. And when they asked Ammon to leave and he refused, they arrested him on trespassing charges. That is uh, what occurred in March of 2022. Ammon spent 12 days in Ada County Jail. He was abused by the Sheriff's Department personnel while there. He also posted bond to be released. That bond was forfeited. Interesting. The political and corrupt judge who presided, and uh, I I don't remember her name off the top of my head, Anna something, uh, was double-talking the entire time, Bill says. St. Luke's and Ammon had worked out a plea agreement and presented that to the judge, and not surprisingly, the judge did not want to accept it. 99.9% of the time, if the plaintiff and defendant reach a plea, the judge will take the plea, and it's a done deal. But this judge, working for Governor Little, wanted a bigger pound of flesh. So after about two hours of back and forth, the judge relented under the input of St. Luke's counsel and passed a verdict after Ammon pleaded guilty to the charges. 90 days in jail with 78 suspended and 12 days already served. One year, unsupervised probation, and a $1,000 fine plus court costs. That would be about an extra 150 bucks. So, Ammon is free as of now. 
Now, this is the good part. People in attendance actually stepped up and paid his fine. I'm sure that gave the judge heartburn. Good. (laughs) So now what's pending is the civil case. And this is the civil case that St. Luke's has filed against Ammon. This is a different matter. This, and, and I think Bill is right. He says this is the place where they wish to destroy him financially, in collusion with Governor Little and our state government. The law firm for St. Luke's is the very same firm that represents the governor and his cronies. So if they can do this to Ammon, Bill says, think of what they can do to you if you fall under their target, if, you, if, you, if they set their eyes on you. So we'll have to keep you uh, posted on this. It's, I mean, this was as good an outcome as could be expected for the criminal trial, the criminal side, the criminal trial of trespass. Um, if you don't know the story of, of what it took to rescue baby Cyrus from being medically kidnapped by this hospital and uh, the Department of uh, Health and Welfare under the Child Protective Services, it's worth going to peoplesrights.org and, and reading about it for yourself. I mean, look... You may disagree with Ammon on some things. You may think, oh, he's just, you know, he's causing too much trouble. But I'm telling you, this guy is consistent in standing up for people's rights. He, he is willing to get in there and, and suffer. And to threaten him with arrest, pfft, the guy has been arrested more times than he can count. He's been to more court hearings than he can count. How is it that he keeps, uh, you know, finding his way back to freedom? It's not because he's gaming the system. It's I, you know, I, I think Ammon would tell you it's because you know he puts his trust in the Lord, and the Lord delivers him. Now it doesn't always come immediately. He and others sat in jail for two years in Pahrump, waiting for a trial. While in Oregon and then in Pahrump, waiting for a trial that ultimately was was uh, declared a mistrial and the charges dismissed with prejudice, because it turned out that the government had fabricated and and concocted the whole confrontation at Bundy Ranch in 2014 and then withheld evidence numerous Brady violations but the funny thing is you know the the press beats the drum well Ammon's an insurrectionist Ammon's a troublemaker he's a terrorist and so forth nobody at least within the legacy media seems capable of, of asking the question is government ever wrong can it ever be wrong can it ever be a source of injustice Look, I can only tell you what I've seen firsthand from talking with and interacting with, and yes, I do know Ammon on a personal basis. I think he's a very decent and moral individual. Even if I don't fully understand sometimes why he'll take the stand that he does, I know from my personal experience with him, he's doing so from the most moral and and charitable standpoint that he can. He's not inciting violence. He's not trying to, uh, you know, to just you know, spoil the system that's keeping the rest of us free and safe because it's not. He's pointing out some real problems and people don't want to see him. It's easier to attack him than it is to address the fact that you have a boot on your neck. All right. Well, that's the update. Bill, again, thank you for for going to the courtroom and and bringing us that update. I don't know where this goes from here. I assume that, uh, you know, the, the coup de grace is going to be administered in the civil trial where they will try to take everything that Ammon and his family have. And the press will do everything they can to reinforce that, oh, this is good, this is just, and this is the right thing to do. Which, which brings me to the idea of, let's, let's talk for just a moment about, you know, what it means to, to be led astray by artificial rules. 
You hear a lot of arguments these days about how much power should be exercised over us and by whom. But you won't hear a lot of people asking, by what right do men exercise power over each other in the first place? This is what Oberon Herbert asked in his essay, The Right and Wrong of Compulsion by the State, which what he did there was he took uh, the same question, essentially, that uh, Frederick Bastiat sought to answer in his essay, The Law. Why do we have the state? Why do we have laws? Now, Bastiat argued from a utilitarian point of view, well, it's to make sure that justice prevails, to make sure that people aren't engaging in legal plunder and that the law isn't being used to serve just the interests of those in power. Oberon takes a much more moral basis for his argument. And he asks the question, how can any act, how can an act done under compulsion have any moral element in it, seeing that what is moral is a free act of an intelligent being? Think about that for just a second. That moral element is more important than we think because it cuts to the heart of where government power may be rightfully limited. If you're forcing someone to do the right thing, they are not a moral person, and what they are doing is not necessarily a moral act because it's being done under compulsion. Now, if they freely choose to do the right thing when they could freely have chosen not to do the right thing, that is a moral act. And the moral case that we're facing here is the case that rightness or wrongness of a particular action cannot be based on whether or not the majority agrees with it or not. Otherwise, we'd just be conceding mere numbers give us the unlimited right to take whatever we want from others, including the right to act for ourselves. By a simple majority vote, well, the majority says this is what we have to do. Let's go take Bob's cow. Does that sound moral to you? Yet it perfectly describes the attitude held by so many people in our society, not just politicians. And it makes me think of the quote from Thomas Jefferson in a letter to Peter Carr, where he said, state a moral case to a plowman and a professor. The former will decide it as well and often better than the latter because he has not been led astray by artificial rules. So I guess that puts on us the onus of not being led astray by artificial rules. You know, this is, it's, it's, it's a good quote sometimes to to use if someone is, is, uh, you know, Advancing on you and waving their diploma in your face. Look at this, I'm smart, I've been to school, I have a diploma. And, and they may very well be an intelligent person. But if they've been led astray by artificial rules, all that intelligence isn't really helping them. Now we can't change them. But what we can do to make sure that we don't end up in a similar sad state is make sure that we're keeping our own moral compasses regularly calibrated to help us better recognize the difference between legitimate law that protects freedom and artificial rules that diminish it. This is something a lot of us have just kind of outsourced to, well, you know, we leave that to the politicians. We'll just let them sort it out and figure out what uh, what needs to be. You can't do that. One of the reasons that Ammon is the kind of guy that he is and willing to stand up for people like the Hammonds in Oregon or stand up for his family there in, in uh, Nevada or to stand up for baby Cyrus or any of the other people that he has stood up for is because he knows the difference between right and wrong. He knows the difference between what is moral and what is immoral. And when the state is unjustly or immorally trying to exercise compulsion on someone, Ammon's one of those few people who understands well enough to stand up and defend that person. I know people hate him. I can't figure it out except that they just don't understand what it is that they're missing.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, please go to thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on any of the show notes. Doesn't matter what day, down at the bottom of the page, you're going to see a nice little button that says subscribe. And it's going to ask you for your email address. I'm not going to bombard you with spam, although uh, five days a week you will get a new email from me saying, hey, here is, uh, you know, here's the latest show notes. And you'll find articles and links in there that uh, that I have mentioned in the show. Oftentimes, I have more articles that I can get to in the course of the show. So you'll find other reading material. I'm not telling you this is the only thing you should be thinking about. I'm just saying these are things that could give you a better, broader understanding of what's going on. Filling in some of the gaps that uh, legacy media just doesn't seem interested in covering. So I've got three articles I want to mention quickly in this final segment. One of them is about the fact that, you know, hindsight helps us connect the dots. We couldn't always see when things were going sideways. Hugh Davenport writing for, or Huck Davenport, sorry, Huck, uh, it's uh, for AmericanThinker.com. Time shows that the paranoid people were correct about COVID. Now, this is not so much, you know, chest thumping. Yeah, we were right. You were wrong. Suck it. You know. This is about uh, acknowledging something that, that I think is, is pretty long overdue, and it's not about bragging rights. It's about recognizing, holy cow, there were people who were warning us all along. So we are now three years after the COVID-19 apocalypse began, says Huck Davenport, and the CDC and World Health Organization still refuse to acknowledge that the virus was created in and escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But they, along with all our institutions, have lied so often and so egregiously that 72% of the public doesn't believe them. So that's a positive sign. The evidence for the lab leak is as overwhelming as the evidence for a zoonotic origin is non-existent. For anyone trained in the art of biology to deny the lab origin betrays either deceit or worse, willful ignorance. So he says, here I examine just three facts that together if not singularly, prove dispositively that SARS-CoV-2 was a man-made lab creation, not the least of which is that they told us exactly what they were going to do. Now, he talks about what viruses are, obligate intracellular parasites composed of genetic material, and he says to, uh, const- to uh, they, they specify specific amino acids used to construct proteins that hijack the machinery of the cell to produce more viruses. Now, that's not an easy task. So to do so, viruses are very specialized and highly specific to their host. They can and do randomly mutate. That is, they undergo random changes to their genetic code that gives them fitness in another host, albeit infrequently. But once they get a foothold in a new host, they continue to evolve by natural selection, making themselves better adapted to reproduce in their new host. One key factor for a virus to be successful in a new host is to have a highly tuned receptor binding domain, or RBD. And he gets into some of the mechanics here. I'm going to skip over this. If you want to read the article, you'll get into a much, much more detail. But he, he dumbs it down to where, yes, even, even I can, can pretty much get my mind around it. But the point here is, there were people who saw what was being done to, uh, to conduct gain-of-function research on this particular virus. And it's, 
it's very clear that to whatever was going on with the COVID virus, there were patents that were filed for certain alterations that were done to the virus. Isn't that something? And of course, these are the things that, that were key to creating a, uh, a vaccine for it. And just coincidentally, some of the people who were behind the uh, gain-of-function research are the very same people who had a hand in the vaccine and made, you know, millions, if not billions of dollars. So the point is simply this. Six million dead worldwide, the entire world economy ravaged, trust in our institutions destroyed, all because the Cavalier gain-of-function researches in Wuhan, financed and assisted by the U.S. government, created and accidentally, at least we hope it was accidentally, unleashed its chimeric Frankenstein pathogen into the world, all in the name of science. He says, many of the world's worst have done less damage in the name of genocide and conquest. Now, again, you may not want such a detailed explanation, but it's pretty interesting what has to happen for a virus like SARS-CoV-2 to come about. And I think he makes a pretty strong case that, you know, those who say, well, there's no way that that came from, you know, from a lab. In fact, I, I just wonder what's going to happen as we see the curtain pulled back further to biolabs in Canada, biolabs in Ukraine. Kind of makes you wonder if our government has been working on some really nasty things in the dark with our approval, of course, right? This is the deal with the devil that we made for the national security state following World War II. Maybe it's time to separate these people from power. Like, quickly, permanently separate them from power. All right, moving on. We can all use a good pep talk from time to time. Got another great article here. This is from John Green. We are not victims unless we choose to be. And he hears from people who are, you know, they really get the sense that, hey, this is, this is hopeless. The Democrats have corrupted our elections. Our vote will never matter again. Uh, we'll never see justice from the Department of Justice. The system is rigged against us. You can't fight the federal bureaucracy. It controls everything. We'll never get out from under all this debt. Collapse is imminent. A return to founding principles is hopeless. Poor, poor, pitiful me. Honestly, I sometimes feel that myself. Every one of those points, I think, yeah, yeah, there's, there's some truth to that. But in this case, John Green says, look, granted, it isn't all conservatives that are saying this, but an alarming number are starting to sound like they're accepting victimhood. Now, he says, look, the left is very happy about victimhood. They want us to accept our lot in life as helpless subjects, dependent on them for everything. But he says, it's time we accepted a hard truth. We're in this mess because we let it happen. But the left would like us to continue denying that truth and accept the victimhood they're promoting. So this is the, this is the language of victimhood. We face prejudices in society that can't be fixed with hard work and outreach. We need more government oversight. Others are so much wealthier than us that we can't close that gap with hard work. We need more government in redistribution. Our streets are unsafe and we don't know how to defend ourselves. We need to sacrifice our freedom for security provided by the state. We fear a viral Armageddon and thoughtful individual risk management will not save us. We need the government emergency powers over our behavior, associations, speech, and medical treatment. Yeah, if we accept that belief system, he says, we have no control over our own lives. And from there, it's just a small step to accepting state control of everything. In fact, that last step into tyranny is exceptionally small, but disturbingly consequential. Now, he points out, many on the right mourn the America that we're losing, the land of freedom, equality, and opportunity. But we on the right bear some responsibility for this mess. We are complicit 
We can't blame the left for doing this to us because it wasn't done to us. It was done with us. We had the power to say no, but we didn't. We allowed it by being derelict in our duty as citizens. By the way, Andy Frizzell kind of drives this point home too. If every person who really cares about freedom and understands you have to draw the line and stand firm, if they had said no when the very first lockdown orders came, when the first mask mandates came, when the vaccine mandates came, had they said no, if enough people had said no, it never would have gone anywhere. But we didn't, at least not enough of us. The article here says, in 1967, German student Rudi Dutschke told us that Marxists would do a long march through the institutions. Well, they did it, while we ignored it. The left used the school to tur- schools to turn our children into loyal subjects. They've used the propaganda media to make us believe a false narrative. Leftists running major corporations have worked to impose their own ideology on us. Government bureaucracy has worked to eliminate freedom and due process. Those who wish to undermine America have used moral relativism to destroy our sense of right and wrong. And all of that's been happening right under our noses since at least the 1960s. All the while, we refuse to see and refuse to act against it. We stopped telling our children the importance of freedom because we thought freedom was forever. We let the schools stop teaching civics because we didn't have time to audit their curricula. We allowed the Constitution to become the most misinterpreted document in America because we didn't read or understand it. And we didn't hold those sworn to uphold it accountable for perverting it. Now, we can blame others for our current state if we wish, but the point is we could have prevented it, and we didn't. But here's the thing. We can successfully take power back as easily as we gave it away. The real power of a self-governed people is a state of mind. It's a belief in ourselves and a faith that we will overcome. It's a certain knowledge that our future is not subject to the whims of others, but dependent on our own efforts. People who successfully bounce back from violence, for instance, universally say they refuse to be a victim. They understand they can be victimized without accepting their victimhood. So, if we teach our children good from evil, if we hold public servants accountable, if we're active in government, especially at the local level where election shenanigans happen, challenge the MSM narrative, there are no alternative realities, just because some fool with a $200 haircut says something, doesn't make it true. And we can also celebrate America. It's a place of pride, not shame. But most all of this is possible only when you are willing to invest in your knowledge of what it is you're trying to defend. So what are you doing today to invest in that knowledge? This is The Brian Hyde Show.